Mr. Mike. I'll um I'll let you introduce yourself, mate. You've got a rather a reputation of being a bad motherfucker. <laughs> I guess uh, maybe maybe just a training nerd. Uh, I'm Mike Tushir. I've been powerlifting since 2003, like official competitions, uh, and I've been coaching since not long after that. Uh, it's kind of a long story, but I ended up kind of a de facto coach of my uh, university club team. And I've been coaching ever since. And so these days, uh, that's primarily what I do. I started coaching almost entirely online, probably around the 2008 timeframe, which is when we started Reactive Training Systems. So these days, we're primarily a coaching company, but we also do a lot of coaching education. Uh, so teaching concepts to, to other coaches. Um, and we're kind of... Uh, doing more in like training theory spaces as well. Like uh, I'm a huge training nerd. So I like to think about all this stuff. So um, which I'm sure we'll get into today and uh, you know, trying to think about more ways to make some of the headier concepts accessible to people. Mm. What, uh, what would you think is the, like the biggest barrier then? For, for that type of thing? Yeah. That I guess just that there's so many nested concepts, right? Mm. So I would love to uh, talk about, like, I'm, <laughs> the, the coaching staff at RTS would tell you that I kind of lost my mind around uh, things related to fatigue from like 2018 to 2019. <laughs> like, we have a, you know, we use Slack uh, for internal communications, and like, I would post these long, just rambling thoughts that I was having around this or that or the other thing. And, uh, but it's all these nested concepts. Like none of that would make sense if you didn't also understand stress index. And if you didn't understand like why that was the way it was, or, you know, some of the other things that we think and believe around training. Um, but like, once you get there, then I think some of that stuff gets more interesting but then ultimately, what do you do about it? Well, I mean, if you're also a training nerd and you like to learn about this stuff, then, you know, then learn all of it, you know. But if you're not, it can still make a positive impact to training. So it's, okay, how do we, how do we digest this and boil it down to, okay, what do I do today? You know, what decisions should I make? Because that's ultimately what it's going to come down to. Um, so yeah, trying to, trying to get there. <laughs> if you, if you like wind the, the tape back, what started the, the, the training uh, nerd in you that was like got little and was like, I need to learn everything. I need to know about this thing. I don't know really. I mean, I've just always been interested in it. Like from, from the very beginning. So I started lifting weights and, 97 I was 12 and uh there was a club team at my school uh it wasn't even competitive it was just like hey let's go lift weights you know and the teacher would show you different exercises and stuff like that and I found out that I was pretty good at it you know nothing ridiculous uh, I've heard heard plenty of ridiculous stories mine wasn't that outlandish but uh you know better than my peers um so 
I got interested in lifting and, uh, you know, so did kind of whatever, you know, I mean, you're freaking 12, so who cares? Um, but then I remember when I got into high school, I was a freshman in high school and I was a football player as well. Uh, and I showed up to the weight room, uh, for the first day of like football weight training. And I handed the coach my program. I was like, here, this is the program that I want to do. And it was just a program that I wrote, uh, pieced together from, you know, shit that I read, <laughs> you know, mostly magazines even because this, this was, this would have been 99, you know, not a whole lot of internet fitness going on and what was out there wasn't that great. Hmm. Um, so I wrote a program and said, here, this is what I want to do. And I'm grateful that he was just like, yeah, okay, go for it. <laughs> you know, Cause like I was clearly uh, switched on. I was excited about weight training, excited enough to like try to make my own program. And I mean, in hindsight, I think about it and I think he's probably just trying not to squash my enthusiasm, which is great. It, it worked, you know, and I was in there, I trained harder and, uh, uh yeah, it was just more excited about it than, you know, my, any of my peers. And, and it showed it went very well. I was the strongest kid in the area and everything like that. So that was, that was all like positive that came from it. And I guess like thinking while I'm talking, that's probably when uh, a big part of what kicked off that training nerdism. You know? mm. Yeah, especially when you start getting those newbie gains, right? You, you're like, oh, something's kind of working, but it's working a lot. And you're like, yeah. oh, let's let's learn as much as we can and start jotting things down. And yeah, back into the, the magazine days. Yeah. And I remember uh, learning that you could do fewer than five reps. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I remember like figuring that out. And I remember like kind of wrestling with it a little bit too. Like, uh, oh, wait, you can do you can do three reps. So I, you know, was doing it for a while and was getting really strong and like kind of being concerned that was like, I don't know, man, I might just never do anything more than three reps again. Cause it's working really well. <laughs> yeah. Like stuck in the, you know, the 10 to 12 or the eight to 12, you're like, ah, mm -hmm. okay, let's do four by eight to 12. And you know, in three weeks time, I'll increase the weight or whatever. But it's like, yeah, you start learning about the threes. You're like, okay, I'm never going to do anything more than five again. <laughs> Paradigms are a hell of a thing, you know, it's like, I, I mean, it seems so, it, it's kind of funny now to think back on it, but like, you know, this idea that you can't like, oh, wait, it's possible to do fewer than five reps. Like, that just blew my mind. You know, like, well, yeah, you could do one, two, three. You could do any number of reps that you want, you know. Um, but, yeah, that, that would be, like, a valid training decision. So, and, I mean, there have been a few events like that that have kind of stood out, like the realization of uh, stuff you didn't previously realize was possible. Um, some training-related, some not. But um, that always kind of sticks with me too you know this idea of that there might be something that you haven't even thought of yet that could be important you know mm. it's good motivation to 
keep turning over rocks. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And it's like, you know, you come up with a concept and it's like, oh, well, how do I figure out whether this is true or not? Well, I'd probably get in the weight room and go try it. You yeah. know what I mean? Yeah. And uh, I kind of miss those days. Um, you know, yeah. I'll, I'll have it still. You know, you'll create something. You're like, oh, I, I am pretty sure that's going to work. Like 95% sure. And you're like, yeah, but there's that 5% in the back of my head. That's like, Alex, you probably need to think that one over a little bit more. So you're like, cool, well, I'm going to go in and figure it out. I think there's a lot to be said for that. You know, the, 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 the coach who uh, is also a practitioner, you know, that, I mean, I've noticed things from that that I just wouldn't have otherwise noticed, you know, mm-hmm. that you start to notice like internal I don't know, things going on internally mm-hmm. uh, while you're trying something new. Here, good example. Uh, recently, I've started employing a bit more metabolic work, in particular, uh, I, I guess we could hand ring over the exercise science of it, but uh, lots of coaches will call it a, an oxidative protocol mm-hmm. uh, where you take so oh, fairly lightweight, like 30% of one RM and you do 40 seconds on 60 seconds off for four rounds. And then you do as many series as you need to do to get, you know, the workload that you want to get. Um, so I got curious about that for the purposes of, uh, uh, you know, developing energy systems and, uh, possibly, you know, making athletes things like that. And I thought, you know, this is the thing that I need to do. I need to do it first. Mm -hmm. You know, I need to see what's the experience like, because that's a very important thing, Mm -hmm. you know, especially from an athlete's perspective where that's primarily uh, your point of contact with training is your experience of the training, you know? So uh, uh, I went and did it and, you know, it was fine but I did make some realizations uh, like I would want to limit the number of series to probably one or two our first time out, you know, and I wouldn't have necessarily thought that was important if I hadn't done it first, mm-hmm. you know, and I wouldn't. So there's things that you'll think of, you know, having lived through the experience of it that you may not realize just writing it on paper. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah you've taken the the human side out of it right and you're just seeing the the numbers the words on the on the paper or on the screen and it's right. i think it is uh so important to get that feeling because then you can yeah. also empathize with the athletes too right you're like oh, okay cool like right. i know i know what you're feeling right now because i've put myself through that ringer too well you know like say you're designing a, a training session you know uh and you uh, one thing that comes to mind is when I've designed uh, energy system circuits and things like that before, that I'm always mindful of uh, putting too many things that tax the grip or too many things that tax the lower back in sequence, because once those things go, you're kind of screwed for the rest of the circuit. You know, yeah. it's not the same as getting like a biceps pump or something. You know, it's mm-hmm. you're 
you're done, mm. <laughs> you know? And again, like that's not something that I would have thought of until I did it a couple times. I was like, oh, wait, this kind of ruins it when I structure it this way, you know? I mean, how many athletes need to have a bad experience before, you know, you understand that as a coach? Well, if you try it yourself first, not that many. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 100%. I, uh, I totally, totally agree. Mm-hmm. Um, how long has uh, Reactive been around then? Uh, since It's... 2008. Wow. That's when we officially became a thing. And then is, uh, I mean, I can't get over how many, is it world record holders or is it um, world, rec- uh, world athletes? Uh, 12 world record holders at the last time I counted. Uh, that's insane it is it is i'm i'm very proud of that and i would like to say that that was like part of a a master plan or something but uh i mean i i certainly enjoy working with athletes at that level um but it's a it's a fortunate opportunity that i've been given Hmm. i mean it's always going to be part planned and part like these athletes are just above and beyond right like you can you can plan for everything but as we know like genetic differences people come in you're like you are literally a freak well and i've definitely had my share of those you know Mm -hmm. that i've picked up some athletes that were already at that level and uh, that's a different kind of training experience for sure Mm -hmm. it like when Uh, I first started working with Dennis Cornelius. I mean, he was already winning IPF Worlds by a lot, you know. And, you know, I'd been talking to him for a long time. We talked about training for a long time. And he finally decided that he wanted me to, to do some coaching for him. And I remember thinking a little bit, like feeling like the dog that caught the car, you know. And I thought, there's so many ways for me to do this badly, Mm-hmm. You know, there's so many ways for this to go wrong. Uh, and honestly, I'm not sure that there's, you can't be sure in that moment that there's any ways for it to go right. Like you have an athlete like Dennis Cornelius. What if it's just not possible for him to get better? Mm. Well, at the same time, I can't, I, I don't really believe that, you know? <laughs> uh, so we try it. And fortunately that's one that, that worked out. You know, we definitely had uh, some really good training blocks and some good competitions come from that arrangement. So like there's that type of experience, but then there's the other type of experience too, like uh, uh, Liz Craven or, or Bryce Krawcheck. Um, I started working with them before, like well before they were at that level. And so that's a different kind of thing too, you know, that it just, you just keep, doing the best you can and Mm. you see where you end up you know which is really what you should do anytime you know you just let's make the best training we can now we're going to take things as far as we can go and we end up where we end up hopefully that's something cool Mm. Um, but at at a minimum it will be the best that we can do and that's worth it by itself for sure what's it like taking on board an athlete who's already at the top of their game because like throughout you know throughout the years I've 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 coached some pretty pretty good athletes right but they've all been kids the international ones have been like 
middle teens slash late teenagers, right? And they, they you kind of a mentor in that sense more than a okay, this is what you're going to do. A, a, a coach, they're still looking up to how am I supposed to live life, and it's kind of just guiding them a little bit more. And they're going to eventually go down the stream that they're going to go down. But taking on an athlete that's already a world champion and already at the top of their game and be like, how am I going to get better? You're like, fuck, you're already blowing yeah. people out of the water. How am I supposed to infiltrate that mindset and then improve upon it? Yeah, I mean, we, I believe in the process that we use. So mm. that helps tremendously, you know, that, you know, Dennis is a, is a good example, but, you know, we could talk about Brett Gibbs or, uh, you know, several others probably like when they come in it's definitely a lot more collaborative than it would be for somebody who's uh, uh, less experienced and that's not really so much about the level that they're at but more the experience that they've got you know that they've already been doing lots of effective training so you know they wouldn't be coming to me if they didn't think I had something to contribute for sure. Um, but at the same time, they have something to contribute to, and that has to be respected. So anybody, I would say anybody that has that kind of training experience should be dealt with similarly. Um, now, if you're talking about someone who's, you know, maybe more novice, maybe a little bit more toward the beginner stages, um, which in powerlifting, we rate the beginner stage pretty broadly, I think, you know, like you'll hear somebody say less than less than four years of training, you know, you're still a beginner. That's a pretty broad beginner zone, but regardless, uh, if you, I guess maybe training age is a better way to frame that. So if you've been training less than five, six years, I still want to know what you, what you've noticed, but we may not rely on it quite so much because you're still changing a lot as an athlete. Uh, We also, might just explore things because sometimes little differences can make, uh, make a big impact. You know, you may say, uh, you know, pin squats have never really worked for me. Well, where were they in your training week? You know, if it was always, you know, right after deadlifts or something like that, then maybe that's why, Mm -hmm. um, you know, or, or maybe it caused, maybe caused your, uh, uh, lower body volume to drop too much or something along those lines. Um, well, is that a function of, you know, how the loading was, you know, like, was it just too high RPE, uh, you know, something along those lines. So, you know, there's different ways to manipulate some of the details. And, uh, um, I find that, you know, usually with people who are very experienced, they've looked in, they've looked a lot of those places already. Hmm. Um, but still, you know, having a process to go through, uh, like when I was working with Dennis or Brett, or Brett's kind of uh, uh, become one of my go-to examples for emerging strategies because the process worked really well in his case. You know, um, we found some things that he didn't necessarily know uh, before, you know, and I mean, he's a, he's a partner in that process too. Uh, because like he was making observations uh, that I wouldn't have been able to make because they were more experiential, you know, Mm -hmm. like he noticed 
So to, just to give a little background, in a typical emerging strategies block, each week has the same, it, it's, it's a very similar training week within each block. Mm -hmm. uh, the weights are slightly different, but it's the same exercises, the same sets, the same reps. And we're just monitoring uh, the training response. And usually it matches up. Uh, so if you respond well to a training intervention uh, for five weeks, it's going to be five weeks for squat, bench, and deadlift. And normally all the assistance and supplemental exercises will respond similarly. In Brett's case, we noticed that his bench, uh, if we were doing a high intensity block, his bench would kind of peter out around week three while everything else was good until week five. Now, normally when that happens, it's something about the bench training is not tuned correctly. It's maybe too much work or maybe not enough work or the exercises aren't all that effective or something, you know? Well, because I'm talking to him, you know, he notes that uh, for him, it's, it's like this feeling of accumulated wear and tear you know, which there's several different ways you could deal with that. But the way we chose to deal with it is that we would just delay the bench block. You know, we would do, you know, something that's slightly lower in intensity for the first two weeks of the block and then go into the high intensity stuff for the last three weeks so that the peak happened all at the same time. You know, so I wouldn't have known that if it wasn't for his observation. Mm -hmm. You know, so having having good communication and good dialogue is is really essential. Mm. I really like your philosophical approach to coaching, training, mm. programming in the sense of you're going to see one side, right? And take Brett, for example, he's going to see it a different way, like your perception on it is going to be slightly different. And you want to know that side. And then you also want to know another side. And then you also want to question whether all of them are wrong. You're like, what if yeah. everyone is wrong? What about if, I, if I'm wrong? What if this, if this doesn't yeah. work? And it's like, oh, you know, it for some people it would it would send them crazy. And yeah, it, like and it be wrong. It, it can feel like that sometimes for sure, even <laughs> even like when you're experienced with it. Um, but I, I would say that that is one benefit to to having um, yeah, yeah, it's just to having a, a, an experienced coach. It can help guide you through that. That way the coach can go crazy about it and, and you don't necessarily have to, um, which is, they, I guess the secret is that the coaches like that a little bit. You know, they, mm. like, they like losing their mind over this stuff a little bit. Otherwise, <laughs> coaching is not that attractive. For sure. But, yeah, there's a quote by um, Liam Gallagher who's actually, it's in one of his songs, he's a musician. Uh, he goes, if I don't go crazy, I'll lose my mind. <laughs> yeah i could see that there's yeah. a there's an yeah. aspect of enjoyment of you know possibly learning something new like you're really pushing the the boundaries there and it might be just learning something new that applies to this one specific athlete mm. but that's still useful and it's still cool and it's pretty damn important for that athlete too mm. yeah especially when you're 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 dealing with world champions like yeah it's it's big. Yeah. Well, yeah. In that case, it can impact a lot more than, than just them. You know, mm. the, 
the downstream effects there are pretty uh, pronounced. Mm. And like one of the, the main things why myself loves coaching so much is like you, you, you've got to like figure it out. You're like, um, um, like a detective. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And like everything, every case is different. Every athlete is different. Every like day to day is different. Let's be honest. Like someone's going to come in and start adding the, uh, the psychology of the athlete involved in there. That gets yeah. really complicated. Um, especially yeah. if, you know, things are, things are going on at home or like a pandemic or whatever starts messing with people's minds. You're like, yeah. Oh my, like yesterday, everything was perfect. Obviously perfection is not a thing, but it's closest down it. And now today, you're like, what is going on? Like, yeah, yeah. But I love it. You know, that was the thing that, like, there's a specific training version of that thing that would happen from time to time. Uh, it would be, uh, uh, you know, we were doing a block. Um, unfortunately, lots of times, this is like years ago, like, pre-2015 I would say unfortunately a lot of times this was like a pre-competition block you would end up you know three weeks four weeks out from the competition and performance would just tank suddenly you know and you're like what the hell is going on um it's too late really to do very much about it you know um so you're left to kind of in damage control Unfortunately, that didn't happen every time, but it happened often enough that it was pretty upsetting, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but one of the, the nice things about kind of the emerging strategies framework was that it dealt with that specific case. You know, first of all, you would it says monitor the athlete and figure out when do these things happen. Oh, it happens every fifth week or every sixth week. Well, use that and time your blocks appropriately. Well, that makes sense. Also, if that happens, then here's some things that you can do to mitigate it. Okay, well, now I have a roadmap and I have some, some tools that I can use, you know, some ways to reduce the likelihood that this thing is going to happen. And then if it does happen, some things I can do to fix it or at least make it better. Yeah. Um, and that's a much better place to be as a coach. You know, the training is more effective. Uh, and then as a coach, you feel uh, more confident and, and for good reason too. You're, you're more potent as a coach too. Mm, for sure. For sure. If I was going to, if you were going to give one piece of advice, right, to a young lifter and an old lifter, so someone who's kind of just got into this SPD stuff and someone who's been in it for fucking years, what would you give them and how would they like conflict each other if they would? Mm-hmm. That's a tough one. So for the young lifter, I would say to make sure that they're logging things. Uh and, and logging their training in a way that helps them make decisions. You know, it might be, you know, writing it on a, you know, writing it in a notebook for a little while, um, but you need to have a way to digest that and, and turn it into something. Uh, 
find a way to make good decisions. What is it that you're responding well to? Well, if you're a novice lifter, you're responding well to everything, but you're still responding better to some things than other things, Mm -hmm. even if it's all fairly positive. And someday you won't respond well to everything. And like collecting training data is the retirement savings of powerlifting. You know, it's a, if you wait until you need it, then you've waited too late, mm-hmm. you know? And uh, for an older lifter, that one's a little bit more difficult because there tends to be a lot of variance. Like on one end, you could say, you know, the same type of thing applies. Um, now an older lifter can also lean on their experience a bit more, you know, that they have learned a lot of these lessons just implicitly through the years. Um, but that may, that doesn't, that's not necessarily the case. You definitely see some older lifters who are just doing the thing that they've always done, you know, without a whole lot of thought. Mm-hmm. Um, and I mean, it's never too late, right? Like we've worked with uh, masters three, uh, masters four lifters, and it's used essentially the same process. It's like, okay, well, let's start logging your training. You know, we have more to go from because we can say, you know, what do you know about your own training? Well, I like to train this way. These things work. Those things don't work. There's more to go off of. So hopefully we can make an educated guess, but still we need to to log the training, see what's actually happening and kind of find this balance point of like exploring new things, but then also leaning on the things that we know work uh, to build our our future. Mm -hmm. Wow. Like, um, I don't know if that's, that qualifies as advice necessarily. No, hundred percent. Like, um, you know, documenting what you've been doing to be able to go back and decipher the code really right it's like an enigma code you've got to go back and figure it out sure. i think is is really important and um i don't know where my old training logs are but they're somewhere um you know i've thought about that like i thought about i wonder if i could you know hire somebody on fiverr to take my old training logs and, and like just do the data entry into mm-hmm. the into the training log app. Like, I wonder what I might notice from that, you know? Mm. I mean, on one hand, it would be fun to look at, but I don't know how meaningful it would be because there is an expiration date on these types of things. You know, you you would think that the training that you're doing is having some kind of effect um, that you're not the same person, the same athlete that you were, you know, a year two years ago um and even if your training is fairly ineffective <laughs> um you're at least a couple years older mm-hmm. you know so i think that it's probably not it's probably not vastly useful to look at training logs from when i was like 19 or something but it would be interesting and mm. that that might be worth it by itself, you know? More for the nostalgia, right? Yeah, or maybe idea generation. 
you know, because even like I, I do remember quite a bit about how I trained then. And even if I looked at it and was like, holy shit, that was really effective. I wouldn't just copy that system. I would want to translate it into what does that mean to me today? You know, and so it's going to look different, you know, like back in the day, I trained with more of a West side uh, kind of style. And I just don't see me adopting, you know, max effort days and stuff like that the same way. Now I may take some inspiration and, uh, you know, design some new strategies that are kind of inspired by the old. Uh, and that is potentially uh, useful. You know? why, why wouldn't you go more West Side route today? It's not so much about the West Side component of it. It's just that, you know, you learn things along the way uh, and you don't necessarily want to discard all the stuff that you've learned along the way just to reinstall an old operating system. Mm. You know, so... Uh, it would be find a way to integrate the parts that worked from before with what I've learned in the time since. Yeah. Mm, create some sort of hybrid. Yeah. yeah. Mm, that'd be really interesting. I mean, I think that's kind of how it, how it always goes. You know, um, you start where you start, but you learn new things and then you've got to, to integrate that with all the stuff that you've learned yeah you know, up to this point. Yeah, so that's how we all develop, right? And create new systems and improve and push the boat out just a little bit further each time. Right, right. Yeah. That's the ideal at least, right? Yeah, rather than four sets of 10. <laughs> exactly. But hey, like if you're going to get in the gym and it's the only thing you're going to be doing and you're going to be doing four sets of 10, then get in the gym and do four sets of 10, right? We can, we can sit here and be like, that's probably not the most optimal training program to do, but if it's the only one you're going to do and it's the one that you're going to stick to, just go in and yeah. go in and do something. We'd rather you move and be somewhat healthier than uh, completely geek out like the likes of ourselves and try and like find the perfect program, even though we know that doesn't exist because sure. eventually we'll be able to improve upon it. But, get in and do something even if it's zumba right yeah i mean i've definitely been guilty of uh not super often but i've definitely skipped a workout or two because i was working on an idea uh, which is kind of ironic at the point where it actually happens you know it's like this is the thing that we tell people not to do but i don't know then in the grand scheme like what's what's more uh what has a bigger impact on the long term you know is it the 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 one workout that i do or is it having you know all future workouts being some increment better mm -hmm. i mean i'm not advocating that most people would do that and if you're doing that more than like a couple times a year then it's probably not worth the trade <laughs> you know um but yeah, that is a thing that I've done and I've thought this is exactly the thing that I tell people not to do. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Well, like we said, like if you don't go crazy, you'll lose your mind. Right, yeah. And if you, uh, yeah, if you have that idea and you don't work upon it, like there's, 
it's not a good trade. That's often. the that's the good shit though. Like that's the stuff that keeps me coming back is like, mm. uh, you know, pushing those ideas. You know, so uh, if I'm kind of in that sort of state, then that's the most enjoyable thing I could be doing with that time anyway. So mm. you may as well locked away in the office with a whiteboard or a pen and paper and just going at it. <laughs> yeah, like I said, uh, losing my mind over fatigue or whatever it was. I gave a presentation about this, um, you know, for, for a while, I guess, before the world ended. Um, I was, uh, uh, I would give a presentation about like my ramblings on fatigue, uh, which weren't at the time very conclusive, uh, but it was at least interesting. And in the, the intervening time, I would say I've uh, made some more progress on turning it into actionable stuff. Wow. Like um, the whole losing your mind, literally, mm. I, I read a part of it this morning in whatever book I'm reading at the, at the moment, right? And it was like mm. um, all the famous whatever playwrights would just lock themselves away um, and would tell the gardeners to go round their viewing spot of whatever little building they're sat in so they can literally just sit there and just look out to the ocean or look out to the woods or whatever they're looking at and just be completely immersed in this like mental realm and I'm like oh I absolutely relate to that so hard yeah it's quite funny yeah I mean I think that's creativity in a lot of ways, you know, and it's funny because I never thought of myself as like a creative type, you know, that I, I just didn't fit the mental image that I had for creative types, I guess, mm. uh, until I guess some couple years ago. Um, but it finally occurred to me like, yeah, okay, that I can relate like in the ways that you're talking about and I remember we were at a competition uh, with uh, the whole group and I said something about not like not being a creative type and everyone on the team laughed at me and kind of, I thought maybe I should reevaluate how I see myself, you know? Mm. I mean, you created all this, right? Yeah. yeah Concepts and, just coming up in your mind. Yeah. And if yeah, that's not creative, yeah. I have no idea what is. Yeah, I suppose in my mind, it was a little bit more, uh, um, what's the word for it? Uh, I can't remember the word for it, but uh, I guess uh, archetypal, maybe. Uh, like there's kind of this archetype that I've got in my mind of like what like mm. a creative person is, you know, yeah. a stereotypical playwright or, you know, yeah artists and shit like that and i don't really fit that mold but it's just you know i was incorrect in my stereotyping i guess <laughs> yeah an artist with the barbell right yeah um all right i heard these uh two questions right maybe mm. two weeks ago and i've been racking my brains ever since and literally just been asking everyone whether it's having conversations like we're doing now or i'll, I'll drag someone off the street and be like Guys, <laughs> give me the answer to this, like, because it's a wicked question. Um, first one is like, what's the best life advice you've ever received? 
I don't know, man. So that's, that's hard to pin down. That's hard mm. to pin down like one thing. Um, can I give you two pieces? Yeah, for sure. Make it, make it a little easier on myself. So, I mean, I don't think any of this will be terribly shocking to you, but um, one is just kind of a, an idea of an idea around responsibility. You know, like I, I own a business uh, and technically everything that happens in that business is my responsibility. Mm-hmm. You know, that, you know, somebody has a bad customer service experience, like, well, I'm not doing customer service, but it's still my responsibility, you know, and if, you know, we implement some plan for a product or a, a strategy or something and it, and it doesn't work, then, you know, ultimately it all has to come back to me. Um, and I think that's a useful way to think about most things, even if it's not exactly true. Uh, I, th- I think it's one of these things that's probably not exactly true, but it's often useful mm-hmm. um, and kind of leaning, leaning toward that uh, responsibility viewpoint. And then the other thing, uh, that's come up a lot for me lately, <laughs> uh, lately being the last several, several months, at least there was a quote that, that we had to learn, uh, when I was at the air force Academy, uh, it's that, uh, a good plan executed now is better than a perfect plan next week. Mm. And I mean, it alludes to, you know, perfect being the enemy of the good, which is what a lot of people are familiar with as well. Um, but that that seems to have been coming up quite a bit lately. It's, well, I, I know that there's more that we would like to do, but we need to do something rather than just wait for it to be perfect. It's the man in the arena quote, right? Yeah. Yeah. That one as well. Yeah. That's my all-time favorite that the last um, the first time I ever heard that absolutely kicked me in the throat and I was like wow that just encapsulates everything so perfectly probably will go down as one of the greatest speeches of all time and I would I'd throw my chips into that hat Um, and uh, the second part is what's the worst advice you've ever received (laughs) oh It's funny because like the best advice tends to be general right? Mm. and the worst advice tends to be specific. Yeah. You know, like I can think of some specific things where I look back and think like, man, that was a bad idea. Mm. You know, it's hard to, to generalize it. Um, Like the first thing that popped in my mind. um, So Performing submax singles in training is a thing that's become pretty ubiquitous in powerlifting. You know, singles at eight RPE is a is a meme. Um, it wasn't always that way, and I have a lot to do with popularizing that that trend. And I, and I think generally it's good, right? But I remember um, kind of first starting down this road. 
also a, a bit more context things used to powerlifting training used to skew a lot harder than is currently commonplace mm -hmm. like the idea of uh you know eight or nine rpe would have been considered like moderate you know or low and now you know i have people who tell me like no eight or nine rpe is high you know six seven is moderate and below six is low and i think like look look if you went back to like 2009 and told somebody that they needed to train you know mostly like sub six rpe no one would believe it no one would do it you know um everyone was training harder than that and i mean the utility there is a totally different discussion but I just say that to bring in a bit more context. So when I was first starting to dabble with uh, frequent singles and training was around the last time that Bulgarian style training got really popular in powerlifting, which would have been, you know, 2012 to 2014 timeframe, I think. Why am I dates a little bit wrong there? But um, at any rate, I knew that I didn't want to do like full on daily maxing. Um, but I thought like, how can I take some value from this idea and, and implement it? And so I was doing uh, a single at nine RPE each week. Um, and, and I remember on deadlift, this came out to be like uh, 800 pounds or something. Um, and I was obviously a good deadlifter. Um, and I was really wanting to get to, to 860. Uh, that's what John Cook pulled in the same weight class the year I was born, uh, 1985. And uh, that was a record that stood for decades. And so that was the, the milestone that I wanted to get to. And I remember thinking to myself, if I pull 800 pounds every week for 10 weeks, then there's just no way that I could not pull something close to 860 at the end of that. And that's just wrong. <laughs> you know, there's plenty of ways that that could not work, you know? And I mean, I guess, I guess most of the bad advice that I've got or cautionary tales that I've got come in the form of hubris in some way. There's no way this can fail. There's no way this will be great. Like, no way this could go wrong. There definitely is. And if you don't know what it is, then that's a huge blind spot for you, mm. you know? Yeah, totally. Totally. I, uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm sure I've heard many, many times um, something that hits that, that bar point quite, yeah. quite accurately. You know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, there's plenty of others too, right? I'm not sure how many, uh, uh, personal life stories we need to go into like cautionary tales from Mike's personal life. <laughs> but I mean, it's all, I mean, in terms of bad advice, I'm not sure that qualifies as advice either, but in terms of bad advice being specific and difficult to generalize, I guess it's generalizable. We just have to look a little bit closer, but for me, it all kind of comes back to that. Um, yeah. Hubris of just like, no, nah, it'll be fine. We don't need to be cautious. We don't need to hedge. We don't need to, you know, Blind consider alternatives. Right? Yeah, it's just, yeah, that's a bad plan. <laughs> Hallmarks yeah, of a bad plan, right? 
but yeah exactly like sometimes you you miss that naivety and then other times you're like ah well a lot of things <laughs> got wrong so i kind of don't right. yeah for right, sure right mike thank you so much for your time it's been an enjoyable conversation man i appreciate it thank you man i'll let you get back to your uh wonderful kids <laughs> thank you appreciate it <laughs> all right man take it easy thank you very much you too